Welcome to Transforming Biopharma by ZS. I'm Maria Whitman, and after 20 years in this industry, I'm excited to bring you perspectives on major issues of the moment to challenge your thinking and to help you set in place strategies and capabilities to drive performance so that together we can advance global health. Transforming Biopharma by ZS covers a variety of perspectives on the topic shaping health and their implications, featuring industry leaders who are pushing the boundaries and redesigning the future. Welcome to Transforming Biopharma by ZS. I'm Maria Whitman, Principal at ZS, and this episode is part of our series on the future of healthcare. In this podcast, we talk about where health is headed overall and what it means for biopharma. Today, we're talking with my colleague, Ahmed Albedi. Ahmed is a principal at ZS, where he leads our digital and connected health practice. Ahmed has over 20 years in the digital health and health IT industry with a career-long commitment to personalized healthcare and enabling a bio-digital future. Prior to joining ZS, Ahmed led the digital health company, Medulin. Welcome, Ahmed. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. At CS, we've been spending a lot of time thinking about and researching what it'll take to deliver the type of healthcare that we'd all like to see, healthcare that's holistic, personal, and preventative. With help from the Harris Poll, we surveyed more than 4,000 healthcare consumers and hundreds of healthcare providers in the U.S., and we found some major disconnects in what consumers expect from healthcare and what physicians think these consumers are experiencing. So, Ahmed, to kick things off, let's level set terminology. We've been talking to consumers about a connected health future, which includes flu and connected conversation with those providing care, access and use of my personal health data to drive my care, and incorporation of increasing data streams and monitoring. Now, digital health is a term that's used and misused everywhere. So how should we think about digital health, especially in the context of the future of healthcare? Yeah. So, so Maria, what is digital health could be our entire session. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it's important to break it down a little bit. Digital health, broadly speaking, actually breaks down into essentially three buckets. The first one is virtual care. This is digitization and virtualization of care so that it goes beyond traditional care settings. So the remote monitoring, telehealth, uh, a whole bunch of care coordination stuff that is now digitized is actually virtual care. And this is the oldest of the digital health family, if you will. It's been around a while. In fact, when I was working at Mass General Brigham for several years, I wasn't working on digital health. We didn't call it that. We were working on virtual care, right? And this, this is where my 20 years of experience comes from. It's actually started in virtual care, very active space outside of a life sciences. That, that was the space where you want it to be. The second part is digital health. And really digital health is the, well, the wellness and lifestyle care that now involves tools, digital health tools that are not regulated as medicines. Uh, and that was kind of the second wave of digital health, if you will. Mostly payers, health service companies, et cetera, kind of taking virtual care, but adding to it things that a person, a consumer, a patient, a caregiver could do with their care on their own, right? Um, Think of the WebMDs and all these other uh, type of players that came on board. They're not regulated medicines, but they're doing something more than virtualizing care. And then the third bucket, which is kind of the, the newest kid on the block, is digital medicine. These are interventional things. They are digital diagnostics, digital therapeutics. They are um, regulated you know, decision support tools, et cetera, that are kind of the new vanguard. Um, and they require a lot more evidence, they're more expensive to develop, et cetera, and they require a heavy science capability to deliver. It's really those three ways is a good way to think about it. Different players in the ecosystem, uh, spending different amounts of time on them, 
they do need to all work together. That's the hard part. You can't really have one without the other, uh, but they are, they are in different states of maturity. From a futures perspective, I expect all of them to be very present. I expect the word digital to be used less, but the digital health componentry to be used a lot more. Uh, it's going to be more ambient. It's going to be more natural to consumers and clinicians. It's just going to fit in uh, much more uh, nicely. Uh, and, and we won't have to spend as much time defining things, I hope, in the future. And, but it is going to tr really, truly, and I believe this, it's overused, but it will really transform us from sick care to health care to life care. Uh, I think that's what the future uh, of digital health holds for us. I think virtual care, you're right. There's been a lot of acceleration during COVID, lots of discussion around it. You know, at ZS, we expect, you know, uh, it's still a significant amount of patient visits to stay virtual as we move forward. In our study, actually about 40% of patients uh, for certain conditions believe that they'll, they'll stay virtual. When we start to talk about digital health and digital medicines, I think there's been a little bit less understanding of where we are really. So where are we in the vision of, uh, of digital health in, in this construct? In digital health, we are already on second, third, fourth versions. Many of these are consumer health companies, wearables, fitness, weight management, et cetera. But even things like prediabetes, diabetes reversal, they are some very strong examples. And that's because those examples are not these kind of regulated single interventional things, but they're very person oriented. They typically look at the person holistically or their particular life goal and what it takes to address that. So they are kind of multimodal in nature, digital health. And that makes, makes them much more successful. Access, the way they get updated, the way the, the feedback loops are managed is all very consumer-oriented or uh, population-oriented. So it's faster, it's quicker, the learnings get translated into improvements much faster. Uh, and that makes digital health very promising. So what happens when Life Sciences wants to jump in? The issue is that when life science companies look at digital health, they see successes, but when they start pursuing digital medicine, they are like, why is this so hard? Because you're not really comparing apples to apples. And I can talk about kind of the pitfalls of life sciences when it comes to pursuing digital medicine. Because of the word medicine, a lot of the process and people and infrastructure is being adapted from the molecule world to the digital medicine world. And that has created a very negative impact in terms of progress, very positive impact in terms of learning. But from a progress perspective, it looks really dire. There's not a lot of examples of successful digital medicines that have been launched by life science companies. In fact, there's not a lot of successful digital medicines launched and reimbursed in general. So we're still very early in this, in this kind of digital therapeutic digital medicine world. And, and so that's why terminology and words matter. You really need to understand the ecosystem because the way those things are built the regulations behind them, and the way they have been approached to date are different. So what you really should be seeing is digital medicine development look more like digital health development, but with all the added compliance and regulation. Instead, digital medicine development sometimes looks a lot like molecule development, which is even you know, a very different world. And that's where the, the translation is getting lost, uh, Maria, in, in terms of where we are. Their success is everywhere. Why do we see $150 billion worth of investment? What is going on? How come there's not that many that are successful? If there's 150, that's because that investment is going into different categories with different levels of return and success. So with the economy wavering a little bit right now, do you see investment in digital health waning? 
I think investment has already cooled off significantly in virtual care. They're taking a pause. If you look at what's happening in telemedicine and virtual care and things like that, I mean, these were sky high. It's a post-COVID thing. I'm not an economist, but it's a post-COVID kind of correction. The economy, but also sort of an understanding that we're coming back to a certain new normal that is not pre-COVID or in COVID, if you see what I mean, right? In the pandemic, we're moving to this other place. Um, and, and in that world, uh, expectations of consumers and clinicians is going to differ because clinicians are going to measure virtual care the same way they measure anything connected in life, anything, right? Whether it's uh, knowing that someone uh, delivered something at your house or, or something else has happened or getting your stitch fix box on a regular basis and making corrections, all of that stuff is what they benchmark virtual care on. Because essentially, it's a digitized service. Digital health, on the other hand, is starting to show some, some real results. People are paying out of pocket. Reimbursement is on the rise. Digital medicine is still early. So this blip right now, Maria, honestly, eh. If someone has a breakthrough, digital therapeutic come out that fills a certain gap, it's not going to matter what the economy is doing. The expectation is that digital therapeutics will either enhance the value of traditional medicines. And if traditional medicines are getting price pressure, investment will continue in digital medicine if that promise comes true. Or digital medicine fills a gap where there is no consistent standard of care. So there's a huge underserved need or it closes a health equity gap. Then it's not going to matter much. If it's going to produce that, then the investment will follow. I think digital medicine investment right now is more of a temporal game, not a current state game. It's where all the long plays, because if the long plays are there, the, the investment will continue. It's kind of like electric cars, if you want another analogy, right? We know they're coming. We know the investment is not going to stop. They're going to be fits and starts. But if the results start to, start to show, uh, it's all going to continue and it's all going to rise. Pharma is used to playing the long game, right? Um, you know, 10 to 12 years sometimes to, to produce a medicine. So, you know, digital medicines is a long game that's, a, you know, part of their new portfolio of options for the future. But you mentioned before there's been challenges uh, in, in, even, in even getting to that first few successes for pharma. What are the barriers? So there was a generation of digital medicines that were not called digital medicines. They were sort of the trailblazers. Well, Doc is an example of that. Now they're called digital therapeutics. And if you would do the same today, you know, it would cost less, it would be faster, et cetera, based on what they did well done, not based on how pharma wants to do digital medicine or is inclined to do digital medicine. Pharma has kind of ignored a lot of that story, that learning from the vanguard of digital medicines and went over to learning about molecule development and applying it to digital medicine development on the understanding or perception that these quote unquote startups are just moving too fast. They're not you know, responsible enough. They don't know enough. They don't have enough evidence, all of which is essentially true and accurate, but not for the reasons pharma thinks. And so there is this pendulum swing from we partnered with a bunch of startups, we learned some stuff and nothing really came out of it. So now we're going to you know, try a bit more robust processes and learn what we, we've done this before. We've commercialized, we've distributed, and we, we can do that here. So what's happening is you get generations of products coming through that cost a lot of money don't have a reimbursement clarity, and distribution is a huge problem, distribution and adoption. Um, you spoke a bit before about the expectation of physicians being closer to their experience in other areas of life, like, like stitch fix. What about consumers? As digital health is rising, what's the consumer expectation? Digital health is different 
right? You, the, the way consumers might think about digital health, that middle category, they wouldn't necessarily compare it with the stitch fix box and things like that. They associated with healthcare brands and healthcare companies. They associated with a certain level of trust. They're more concerned about their privacy and so on and so forth. They want to consent to things. Uh, you don't consent to stitch fix, or at least if you did, you probably just signed off on it and moved on, right? It was like a <laughs> terms right. and conditions page and you didn't care. Um, but if, 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 uh, if you get something from your, your payer, or your provider, and there's, they ask you to read some stuff, and you might be, you know, eligible for a test, but they say, you've got to take some time to look at it, right? Even if it's all virtual. Um, and so that the comparison level is, is different. And so it's very attractive, that middle section, because a lot of those consumer things, that gap, expectation gap in consumers between connected life and digital health still ex is still broad, right? And that's why you see Amazon, that's why you see Google, that's why you see Apple, that's why you see Noom, that's why you see Verta, right? Whether they are B2B companies or B2C companies, they're closing that gap of what it means to take care of a person, not just health-wise, but just kind of take care of a person. Obviously, Verta would focus on uh, the diabetes population, but they also take care of the person. If you read their studies, their data, what they've accomplished, they're basically saying, you don't really need all that medication. It's not helping the person. And there's decades of data showing that we didn't move the needle. If you move away from A1C, if you move away from some of the traditional measures and you get to the person, you get better results. Doesn't that sound like Amazon? It's because it is, right? Except it's now applied uh, in that health space and it's digital health as a result. Yes, digital health works better with virtual care. It's easier to get someone to self-coach, et cetera, if you also include you know, virtual access to coaches, virtual access to content, maybe some telehealth, et cetera. So those two work really well. And that's kind of where we are. And that's why it makes it so attractive. That's why investment in that space is going to continue. Unlike virtual care, where I think people are going to start normalizing. How can we commoditize data movement? How can we commoditize use of Zoom? Why does it cost more to Zoom with my doctor than just Zoom with my colleagues, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that, that's just going to get reconciled because of, you know, expectations. So let's put on your crystal ball, your futurist hat, um, five years from now, where are we going to be with digital health and connected health more broadly? So I think uh, five years from now, I think virtual care is going to be much more ubiquitous thanks to technology backbone. You know, all this stuff we talked about, which is not really digital health, but super important. Interoperability, data, liquidity, you know, access to more conferencing, bandwidth. Just think about bandwidth 10 years ago. It was horrible, right? You couldn't do video calls like this all the time. It would just be hard to do. Um, so all of those things will be commoditized even further, making it attractive. Second, I think programmable medicine and biology might actually be uh, become a model for digital medicines because pharma can, can at least look at that as a success story and understand it. So I think that's really important. Uh, and we will see that becoming a, an example, I would say, for digital medicines, for both the non-biopharma sourced digital medicines and, and the biopharma sourced digital medicines. I think bundled products uh, in some form or in many forms are going to be sort of the lead commercially attractive digital medicines, okay? Uh, and then I think marketplaces are gonna emerge in some form. We already know about marketplaces that are provider oriented, right? Some providers are banding together going, we're gonna put all our digital therapeutics over here. Uh, big pharmacy retail is thinking about the same thing. So we're gonna go from, it's all over the place, depending on where I am, which pair, which clinical practice I visited, blah, blah, blah. I might get one digital medicine over the other. That craziness is gonna to start to sort of condense, just like it always does. Uh, we might even end up seeing the beginning of the digital pharmacy wars, 
just like the browser wars and everything else. The beginning, though, it takes time for things to settle, right? Um, and in some uh, countries, uh, markets, it might actually be, you know, there's a government funded version of it, right? Uh, along with some private ones. So I think we're going to see a lot of those things when it comes to digital health and digital medicine. Uh, and then last, I'll say that I think um, the ability to generate data on a continuous basis and use it to inform personalization uh, is going to start becoming a reality. Uh, but it's going to become, I think, a burden on patients to manage their privacy and data. So I think we're going to see a positive in terms of we are the ability to pipe continuous information. But we're also going to see a negative where more people are confused by it, more people are hacked. You know, it becomes more valuable in the marketplace uh, and therefore becomes more vulnerable. So I mean, here's three statistics from our study. Number one, 75% of consumers want the system to be more focused on prevention. Second, the top five things they list include things like the ability to reach my care provider anytime I need them. And third, most consumers when designing a future healthcare system are listing proactive monitoring as a top three priority. So in the five-year future you're describing, do we see any of those needs and wants of the basic consumer for their health coming to fruition? Yeah, I think in five years, people will see digital as integrated to in, integral to accessing care, uh, whether it's chatbot, telemedicine, you know, again, you know, uh, liquidity of data from the visit I had versus the lab test that was run, that, that sort of thing is all part of that virtual care uh, seamlessness. I think we'll see a lot more of that. Uh, so that's the positive on the consumer. The burden of use is going to go down. Even if we can make digital therapeutics, uh, even if we get through all the hurdles and we make more digital therapeutics or, you know, more digital health applications that surround and support um, disease area outcomes, there is still a challenge on the ground of adoption. Um, so, so, you know, there's the challenge of physicians understanding and knowing it, patients trusting it and believing it, and of course, then payers' willingness to pay it. You know, one of our recent studies, even though payers themselves in the U.S., for example, believe in, in digital health um, and digital therapeutics, you know, about 30 percent are willing to actually pay for them right now. So how do we get the system to a point where as we produce these, there's adoption and use in a way that truly benefits patients? Yeah. So I think we're in a state where there's obviously a lot of fragmentation. The channels to market vary greatly, you know, across markets, across product types for digital medicine specifically. And it hasn't consolidated. Think of your Apple App Store or your Google Play Store. There's no such thing on digital therapeutics for the clinicians. There's no such thing on digital therapeutics for consumers. There's no trusted source for, this is what I've been prescribed. This is where I get it. You know, I, I log in with my regular ID. Everybody knows my stuff. My data is mine. You know, it's easy. It fits in with the rest of my stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So it's right there with the rest of my notifications, blah, 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 blah. So the, the adoption on the consumer side, very fragmented, very like terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Even the experience of going to a clinician, getting a prescription, it goes is delivered to your pharmacy and they either go pick it up locally or, or it's shipped to your home, et cetera, depending on what the medication is. That is far superior because that has already taken away a lot of the issues, right? But imagine if you had to do the same thing with your regular medication. You go to multiple different websites. You don't know if you can trust this one. You got this prescription for your doctor, but he didn't say where it's going to come from, how it's going to happen, what you should do with it. Uh, you know, can you drop it? What happened? Like, there's a lot of like messy stuff around digital medicine, right? So, and this is very much on the ecosystem readiness to measure, evaluate, distribute, right? Uh, circulate, pull off the market in consistent ways. 
if Apple today said, I'm going to start a digital pharmacy and I'm going to set up a clinical team and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, I'm just making something up. I don't know if it's going to, you know, it would happen. There would immediately be an uptick. I guarantee it, right? In adoption of digital medicines, uh, it will be easier for uh, consumers to know what has been prescribed to them. It could just pop right in. It would integrate into the rest of their Apple experience in terms of pulling in data, you know, consent forms, all this other stuff, my privacy, blah, 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 blah. Everything would be worked out. So you mentioned earlier about biopharma and the difference between manufacturing medicine and being in digital therapeutics and digital health. I've spoken to so many senior leaders across biopharma, you know, in the traditional um, longitudinal mindset that, that has evolved on how to effectively bring a medicine to market is a challenge. And so some are, are sitting here debating, should I continue to lead as a medicines manufacturer or should I be more holistic in considering offerings beyond the medicine, whether it's a digital therapeutic, whether it's digital health, whether it's clinical decision support. Um, so, so my question to you is, should all of biopharma be playing in digital health and digital therapeutics? Or are there certain characteristics of companies or the way they go about it that would help them do this better? Yeah, it's a very big, bold question, uh, Maria. I think there's some probably truisms in there. No, not all biopharma companies, depending on the focus they're in, uh, what they're current business outlook looks, where they play, right? And whether they should invest in digital medicines. I don't think everybody should, at least not immediately. There are clearly areas where there are biopharma companies, depending on the space that they're in and what they're trying to do, that they should, right? Then this is where the traditional medicines plus behavioral interventions plus continuous personalization are important. Obviously, that doesn't apply to everybody, at least not right off the bat. But where those, those conditions exist is a prime area for digital medicine development, especially if that's the kind of patient condition, if you will, kind of environment, especially if there's inconsistent standard of care or lack of objective kind of treat to target methods in, in the space, right? So being able to adjust as you go. So Ahmed, tell me more about how digital medicine works in reality versus in theory. Digital medicines inherently measure themselves. They spit out data that a traditional medicine doesn't spit out. Digital medicines are like supposed to be made to fit into digital health and virtual care automatically. They're engineered badly today, but, but you'd expect plug and play. It's the technology space invented. The terms plug and play applies to digital medicine as well. Unlike a, unlike a traditional medicine, you can't plug and play it into EHRs and things like that. You have to do a whole bunch of other work. So where those conditions exist... And where there's some inconsistency is a, is a prime space. So if a biopharma company is playing in that space, they should absolutely go forward with a digital medicine push, some sort of effort. Obviously, there are different ways to get to a, a finished digital medicine product. And you still have to think about who is going to take care of distribution and how that's going to work. There's a shakeout that's going to happen there. Uh, but that would be ideal. Now, commercialization and reimbursement becomes yet another question, right? You have to decide whether this thing is going to be sold and distributed and reimbursed separately, which is a little bit of a wild west right now, um, or it's going to be a bundled product. And I am actually thinking that if there was a bit more concerted pre-competitive effort around defining what bundled products look like, digital medicine and traditional medicine, that would be the best way forward for certain classes and categories of either disease, therapeutic areas or, or drugs, right? So that it's better understood how those things will work together, how they will get measured and how they will get reimbursed. 
So that I think is, is the sweetest of the sweetest opportunity. Now, there are concentric circles of opportunity as you pull out. Uh, and as time goes on and things get cheaper, et cetera, then biopharma companies can, you know, widen who's set up to do this, where is the opportunity, you know, how, how wide does the reimbursement umbrella go, et cetera. But if you are to, to do this today, you might want to focus, right, uh, on those conditions that I, that, I, that I brought up and really try to tie it in a way that makes it, you know, economically uh, viable and, and, and interesting. I agree with the concept of focus. One of the things I, I've uh, been pursuing uh, with my clients is the idea of where can we advance disease area outcomes with this bundle of things together, um, as opposed to just medicines outcomes on the individual assets. I think that's a prime place to make progress. If you're a pharma executive looking to build capabilities and to scale in digital health and digital therapeutics, what advice would you give them? The advice I would give them is you're starting a new business. So the tendency today is I'm going to use people from around the organization and I'm going to put them into this new business. Same role, medical, clinical, regulatory, et cetera, et cetera. Respected roles, you know, hard to fault. And then processes. They try to adjust the processes a little bit, but they don't fully understand the anatomy of the product. The advice really would be find a way to kind of almost venture build, meaning allow yourself the flexibility to have input from existing but don't let existing drive the decision-making. There has to be trusted people that understand the anatomy of a technology, et cetera. The second thing is you can't focus on what it's going to take to make one product because that puts the burden of cost and innovation on the one product. Everything in technology is essentially a platform. Everything in digital medicine is essentially a platform. Why? Because the technology is inherently software, very modular, very reusable, right? very consistently, objectively measurable at the unit level. So when you put everything on sort of this one product, I'm going to start with this and I'm going to go, that ends up being a very expensive product. And then you measure all other products, decisions based on that first one. But that first one, if it was a platform, would bear the burden and get amortized cost and returns over many, many, many products. And then you can decide in that many, many, many products, are you dealing with digital health products, the unregulated kind of value add type stuff, uh, that you might still be interested in. So lower uh, regulatory burden, higher reimbursement potential, et cetera, versus digital medicine, higher IP, protection around IP and things like that. But, you know, higher regulatory hurdles and things like that. But maybe you can use that to, to create kind of a, a value add commercially against the traditional medicines. You can't really do as much of that with digital health. It gets very sketchy. So if you look at it that way, it's new people, new skills, some autonomy, some trust, but think from day one how this is going to get amortized over an entire pipeline and ensure that those conditions really are there, that you're going to be able to enhance the, the value of your medicines, the ability to change the way care is practiced. You're going to be filling those gaps, that, that behavioral interventions are super important, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the conditions must be there. They must be understood. The team has to be relatively new people. A lot of new blood is required. And no, they don't need to integrate into the enterprise. They need to be able to operate and you need to be able to create governance, et cetera, with the enterprise existing people. But they have to have some autonomy because they need to understand the anatomy of the product they're building and that it is going to end up being part of a platform long term. If you read the, you know, kind of the case or, or some papers around, uh, you know, programmable biology and programmable medicine, you'll see how those innovators described it. It was essential for them to create a, a space like this. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to get to their first product, and they think of it as a platform from the get-go. Software that is medicine has a very similar thought process and mindset required. That's how you can justify it. 
but hopefully unlike programmable biology we won't wait 30 years for the for the reality <laughs> again we're building on a very strong foundation we're building Absolutely. on a foundation of virtual care we're building on a foundation of digital health we're building on a foundation of uh, normalization of interoperable data. I mean, things have moved significantly in the last 20 years to create an environment where you should see a lot of movement for digital medicine. You can't make it so arduous and expensive to, to create them uh, because that makes them very unattractive. You can't use the same people and just apply try, try to figure out if the process can be tweaked because that's unattractive. Um, and you need to find ways to distribute that are novel because it's not going to work the same way as a molecule. So so I think that is kind of like, those are sort of the big vectors I think you can focus on if you are an executive or a leader today in, in biopharma and you're like, okay, I think I should be doing something. I'm told I should be doing something in digital medicine, but I, I'm not even sure exactly where the boundaries are and what has been learned already. And I think that's kind of like what, what I would share. Really important advice for biopharma. Amit, thank you. Uh, to wrap up, here's the one question I'm asking all of my guests. If you could change one thing about healthcare, what would it be? Huh. If I could change one thing about healthcare, I would love to address, and this is going to sound like a macro sort of ask, the idea of non-competitive for the good part of healthcare versus the competitive, you know, drive innovation and come up with new things for healthcare. I think we pursue personalization and, and, and uniqueness and things more than we should. There are some basic things that would be lovely if they were sort of neutralized and were, were oriented towards people, populations, and the community. And, and then the rest can, can we, we absolutely still need, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of competitive innovation and, and rewards for those, you know, risk reward uh, dynamics. Uh, but if there's one thing I could change about healthcare, is to find the right balance between those two. I know some markets are very much on one side and some markets are very much on the other side, not naming any names, but it is, uh, in a word, super unhealthy for the planet, for us not to be able to strike that balance. Super unhealthy, right? I believe strongly. It creates unnecessary waste, unnecessary burden on the community, the people. It creates this you know, atrocious fragmentation, misconceptions, et cetera. If we could just strike that balance, I think the world would be a better place. Uh, you know, something that's really appreciated instead of sort of pseudo dreaded by many people right, uh, around the world. In your construct, uh, virtual care, digital health, and digital therapeutics, digital health with many outside players seems to be the place where that marketplace is being created, that competition is being created the most. Exactly. Look outside to, to fix the end. Exactly. Great. Well, thanks so much, Amit, for joining me today. And thanks for listening to Transforming Biopharma by ZS. We invite you to subscribe and leave an iTunes review. To learn more about ZS's connected health research, visit zs.com slash future of health. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Please visit zs.com slash future of health if you're interested in learning more about transforming biopharma and ZS's industry perspectives.